Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the Heming Brainiac List podcast. We're talking about chapter 54 um, of Human Bondage. Well, this is new. New direction for this chapter. Lady Rostova says, So as a veterinary medical student, final term, yay, congratulations, uh, what the professor said about forgetting about anatomy was so true, and I chuckled. Oh, and it was a trip down memory lane, that smell... First year anatomy lectures, naivety, and spoiled appetite. So much of this book, Lady Rostova, seems to be so relevant to you, which is must be really cool. I love when that happens. I am a Norwegian says, I haven't read the chapter yet, but I'm listening to the podcast. Your comment about everyone having that realization that we can do whatever, whatever, reminded me of, of crime and punishment. In large part, that was a response to society at large having that realization as they increasingly paved the path for Philip's kind of thinking and for the might-makes-right mentality especially, which is something that ignores our intrinsic conscience. Where that comes from is debatable, but it does seem to preclude us from that rationalist sort of thinking. Edit. I have read the chapter now. I like this new direction. If anyone is interested in how the medical world looked just after Philip entered it, check out the show The Nick. Spelled with a K. It follows a surgeon at the turn of the century, just when the field was really exploding in innovation. It's a great show. <clears throat> Very cool. Um, I think I can pretty much picture it for myself to some degree of fidelity. Um, all right, that's it. That's the whole discussion. Quick discussion, quick chapter today. Let's keep moving. First of all, of course, as usual, an advertisement for you podcast brought to you by the Hemingway List Patreon page where you can support the podcast for as little as one dollar per month. Head to patreon.com slash the Hemingway List and uh, um, thanks. <laughs> All right, here's chapter 55. Philip's ideas of the life of medical students like those of the public at large were founded on the pictures which Charles Dickens drew in the middle of the 19th century. He soon discovered that Bob Sawyer, if he ever existed, was no longer at all like the medical student of the present. It is a mixed lot which enters upon the medical profession, and naturally there are some who are lazy and reckless. They think it's an easy life, idle away a couple of years, and then because their funds come to an end or because angry parents refuse any longer to support them, they drift away from the hospital. Others find the examinations too hard for them. One failure after another robs them of their nerve and panic-stricken they forget as soon as they come into the forbidding buildings of the conjoint board the knowledge which before they had so pat. They remain year after year objects of good-humoured scorn to younger men. Some of them crawl through the examination of the apothecary's hall. Others become non-qualified assistants, a precarious position in which they are at the mercy of their employer. Their lot is poverty, drunkenness, and heaven only knows their end. But for the most part, medical students are industrious young men of the middle class with a sufficient allowance to live in the respectable fashion they have been used to. Many are the sons of doctors who have already something of the professional manner. Their career is mapped out. As soon as they are qualified, they propose to apply for a hospital appointment after holding which, and perhaps a trip to the Far East as the ship's doctor. They will join their father and spend the rest of their days in a country practice. One or two are marked out as exceptionally brilliant. They will take the various prizes and scholarships which are open each year to the deserving, get one appointment after another at the hospital, go on the staff, take a consulting room in Harley Street, 
and specializing in one subject or another become prosperous, eminent, and titled. The medical profession is the only one which a man may enter at any age with some chance of making a living. living. <clears throat> Among the men of Philip's year were three or four who were past their first youth. One had been in the Navy, from which, according to report, he had been dismissed for drunkenness. He was a man of thirty, with a red face, a brusque manner, and a loud voice. Another was a married man with two children, who had lost money through a defaulting solicitor. He had a, bow, a bowed look, as if the world were too much for him. He went about his work silently, and it was plain that he found it difficult at his age to commit facts to memory. His mind worked slowly, his effort at application was painful to see. Philip made himself at home in his tiny rooms. He arranged his books and hung on the walls such pictures and sketches as he possessed. Above him on the drawing room floor lived a fifth-year man called Griffiths. But Philip saw little of him, partly because he was occupied chiefly in the wards and partly because he had been to Oxford. Such of the students as had been to a university kept a good deal together. They used a variety of means natural to the young, in order to impress upon the less fortunate a proper sense of their inferiority. The rest of the students found their Olympian serenity rather hard to bear. Griffiths was a tall fellow with a quantity of curly red hair and blue eyes, a white skin and a very red mouth. He was one of those fortunate people whom everybody liked, for he had high spirits and a constant gaiety. He strummed a little on the piano and sang comic songs with gusto, and ev evening after evening, while Philip was reading in his solitary room, he heard the shouts and the uproarious laughter of Griffith's friends above him. He thought of those delightful evenings in Paris when they would sit in the studio, Lawson and he, Flanagan and Clutton, and talk of art and morals, the love affairs of the present, and the fame of the future. He felt sick at heart. He found that it was easy to make a heroic gesture, but hard to abide by its results. The worst of it was that the work seemed to him very tedious, he had got out of the habit of being asked questions by demonstrators. His attention wandered at lectures. Anatomy was a dreary science, a mere matter of learning by heart an enormous number of facts. Dissection bored him. He did not see the use of dissecting out laboriously nerves and arteries, which, when which much less trouble you can see in the diagrams of a book or in the specimens of a pathological museum exactly where they were. He made friends by chance, but not intimate friends, for he seemed to have nothing in particular to say to his companions. When he tried to interest himself in their concerns, he felt that they found him patronising. He was not of those who can talk of what moves them without caring whether it bores or not the people they talk to. One man, hearing that he had studied art in Paris and fancying himself on his taste, tried to discuss art with him. But Philip was impatient of views which did not agree with his own, and finding quickly that the other's ideas were conventional, grew monosyllabic. Philip desired popularity, but could bring himself, could, but could bring himself to make no advances to others. A fear of rebuff prevented him from affability, and he concealed his shyness, which was still intense, under a frigid taciturnity. He was going through the same experience as he had done at school, but here the freedom of the medical student's life made it possible for him to live a good deal by himself. It was through no effort of his that he became friendly with Dunsford, a fresh-complexioned heavy lad whose acquaintance he had made at the beginning of the se session. Dunsford attached himself to Philip merely because he was the first person he had known at St. Luke's. He had no friends in London, and on Saturday nights 
he and Philip got into the habit of going together to the pit of a music hall or the gallery of a theatre. He was stupid, but he was good-humoured and never took offence. He always said the obvious thing, but when Philip laughed at him, merely smiled. He had a very sweet smile. Though Philip made him his butt... What? Though Philip made him his butt, he liked him. He was amused by his candour and delighted with his agreeable nature. Dunsford had the charm which himself was acutely conscious of not possessing. They often went to have tea at a shop in Parliament Street because Dunsford admired one of the young women who waited. Philip did not find anything attractive in her. She was tall and thin, with narrow hips and the chest of a boy. No one would look at her in Paris, said Philip scornfully. She's got a ripping face, said Dunsford. What does the face matter? She had the small, regular features, the blue eyes and the broad, low brow, which the Victorian painters Lord Leighton and Alma Tadema and a hundred others induced the world they lived in to accept as a type of Greek beauty. She seemed to have a great deal of hair. It was arranged with peculiar elaboration and done over the forehead in what she called an Alexandra fringe. She was very anemic. Her thin lips were pale and her skin was delicate of a faint green colour without a touch of red even in the cheeks. She had very good teeth. She took great pains to prevent her work from spoiling her hands, and they were small, thin and white. She went about her duties with a bored look. Dunsford, very shy with women, had never succeeded in getting into conversation with her, and he urged Philip to help him. All I want is a lead, he said, and then I can manage for myself. Philip, to please him, made one or two remarks, but she answered with monosyllables. She had taken their measure. They were boys, and she surmised they were students. She had no use for them. Dunsford noted, noticed that a man with sandy hair and a bristly moustache looked like a German was favoured with her attention whenever he came into the shop, and then it was only by calling her two or three times that they could induce her to take their order. She used the clients, whom she did not know, with frigid insolence, and when she was talking to a friend, was perfectly indifferent to the calls of the hurried. She had the art of treating women who desired refreshment with just that degree of impertinence which irritated them without affording them the opportunity to complain to the management. One day Dunsford told her her name Dunsford told him her name One day Dunsford told him her name was Mildred. What? One day I guess she told Dunsford her name was Mildred. He had heard one of the other girls in the shop address her. What an odious name, said Philip. Ah, oh, he told Philip. One day Dunsford told Philip her name was Mildred. He had heard one of the other girls in the shop address her. What an odious name, said Philip. Why, asked Dunsford. I like it. It's so pretentious. It chanced that on this day the German was not there, and when she brought tea to Philip, smiling, remarked, Your friend's not here today. I don't know what you mean, she said coldly. I was referring to the nobleman with the sandy moustache. Has he left you for another? Some people would do better to mind their own business, she retorted. She left them and since, for a minute or two, there was no one to attend to, sat down and looked at the evening paper with a customer who had left behind him. You are a fool to put her back up. To put her back up, said Dunsford. I'm really quite indifferent to the attitude of her vertebrae, replied Philip. But he was piqued. It irritated him that when he tried to be agreeable with a woman, she would take offence. When he asked for the bill, he, ha he hazarded a remark which he meant to lead further. Are we no longer on speaking terms, he smiled. 
I'm here to take orders and to wait on customers. I've got nothing to say to them and I don't want them to say anything to me. She put down the slip of paper on which she had marked the sum they had to pay and walked back to the table at which she had been sitting. Philip flushed with anger. That one, that's one in the eye for you, Carey, said Dunsford, when they got outside. Ill-mannered slut, said Philip. I shan't go there again. His indifference with Dunsford was strong enough to get him to take their tea elsewhere, and Dunsford soon found another young woman to flirt with. For the snub which the waitress had inflicted on him rankled. If she had treated him with civility, he would have been perfectly indifferent to her, but it was obvious that she disliked him rather than otherwise, and his pride was wounded. He could not suppress a desire to be even with her. To be even with her, He was impatient with himself because he had so petty a feeling, but three or four days' firmness, during which he would not go to sh the shop, did not help him to surmount it, and he came to the conclusion that it would be least trouble to see her. Having done so, he would certainly cease to think of her, pretexting an appointment one afternoon, for he was not allowed, sorry, for he was not a little ashamed of his weakness. He left Dunsford and went straight to the shop which he had vowed never again to enter. He saw the waitress the moment he came in and sat down at one of the tables. He expected her to make some reference to the fact that he had not been there for a week, but when she came up for his order, she said nothing. He had heard her say to other customers, You're quite a stranger. She gave no sight. She gave no sign that she had ever seen him before. In order to see whether she had really forgotten him, when she brought his tea, he asked, Have you seen my friend tonight? No, he's not been here in some days. He wanted to use this as the beginning of a conversation, but he was strangely nervous and could think of nothing to say. She gave him no opportunity, but at once went away. He had no chance of saying anything till he asked for his bill. Filthy weather, isn't it? he said. It was mortifying that he had been forced to prepare such a phrase as that. He could not make out why she filled him with such embarrassment. I don't make much difference. It don't make much difference to me what the weather is, having to be in here all day. There was an insolence in her tone that peculiarly irritated him. A sarcasm rose to his lips, but he forced himself to be silent. I wish to God she'd say something really cheeky, he raged to himself, so that I could report her and get her sacked. It would serve her damned well right. All right, there we go. Another chapter down. Phil's having a little run-in with a disinterested waitress. Come on, Phil, rise above, my friend. All right, have your say about this chapter over at the subreddit. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.